This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Here are your tax dollars at work. And uh, if that sounds a little bit facetious, well, it is. Uh, Because obviously, you will from time to time hear from local politicians uh, that, uh, you know, we really don't have a a spending problem here in the city. We, We spend our money wisely. That's what they tell us at Hamilton City Council. We have a revenue problem. We need to generate more revenue. And, and there's, a, there's some validity to that. I get that. But uh, to simply dismiss and say, well, we don't have a spending problem, this next story that we're going to talk about here right now pretty much throws cold water on that whole idea. Construction costs for a parking lot, a parking lot, at a senior's housing complex on the Central Mountain have al- already gone over $1 million. This is for a parking lot. Donna Skelly is the city councilor for Ward 7. This is right smack dab in the middle of her ward. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on this. Hi, Donna. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are you? Good. Listen, uh, let's put some things in context here. First of all, this is a, a file that you inherited. This has been going on for quite some time. And when you, you won election, of course, uh, this is one of the things they plopped on your desk and said, okay, councilor, try to fix this. Give us an idea and a little background on what's gone on here. This is the Mohawk Gardens building. Uh, that people may uh, recognize. It's on uh, Mohawk Road, uh, just across from uh, the Lime Ridge Mall entrance on uh, Mall Road there. And uh, take it from there. Well, it's a senior's public housing building, and it's a, it's a really good building. And they already have an existing parking lot with an existing entrance. And we're expanding the parking lot to include some visitors' parking, which is much needed. Uh, the previous councillor, Scott Duvall, had uh, allocated uh, funding for the building itself, 350000 of which council approved to be put towards this expansion of the existing parking lot. When I was elected, uh, that was about a year before I was elected, when I was elected, I heard about this, this parking lot, this work that was going to be done at Mohawk Gardens. Well, where is it? What's the state? Why haven't I seen any construction? When is it going to be completed? And nobody could seem to really get an answer or give me an answer or get a handle on the status of this particular project. Well, finally, we um, arrived, uh, we found out who had the file and where the file was. And it really wasn't at the city of Hamilton. It was with uh, City Hamilton Housing, City Housing Hamilton. So it was outside of the city hall scope got a hold of the consultant and what was supposed to have been a 9,950 plus HST contract had ballooned already and money already spent. Uh, he received 115,000 plus change. That was just for consulting work on a parking lot. And at that point I said, whoa, I want to see everything. And the cost of the parking lot had escalated from, um, an original estimate of 350000 to almost $1.2 million. How does something like that happen? There is no oversight. Now, there was another person who worked for uh, Hamilton Housing at the time who has since uh, left the, the department, but that's all I know. And it, it just simply escalated. The money was spent. My concern is twofold. Why did we proceed with a project that went from an original estimate of 350000 with no approval from council or anybody, I think the board even at, at Hamilton Housing, uh, the new $1.2 million cost, and who would ever want to spend $1.2 million on parking lots when you have such a problem with housing units in the city? And number two, who authorized and actually signed the, the checks to the consultant for the $115,000? It, it didn't go out to tender. Um, and when I met with the consultant, it was not a very, uh, he, was, he was simply not forthcoming on any information and wanted more money for more information. And it was incredibly frustrating to try and get down to it. And that's when I said, I've got to uh, bring in the auditor and bring in Charles Brown. And he came in, uh, council uh, approved that request, and he's been working on this file for a year. Now, this is just one within Hamilton Housing. There's another audit on Hamilton Housing that will be coming forward as well. I can give you some further background on this. You and I talked about this a few months ago when uh, this started to really escalate. Uh, I represented that area, of course, for nine years as well, and, and I inherited this file, uh, although there, were, there was no parking lot thing going on at the time. But just to give context for people that be relatively new, Mohawk Gardens was constructed way back uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, if I recall, and uh, there was no visitor parking when they put this building together on Mohawk Road there. And when I asked at the time, I said, why not? And they said, well, it's all seniors. Seniors never drive cars. They don't need any parking at all. So, 
I, I said, really? Where were your heads when you guys built this thing? So all of a sudden, obviously, these people moved into the building. And, and I'll tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, at one time my mom lived there, for God rest her soul. But she was there for a number of years, too. And it, it is. It's a great building. Wonderful mm-hmm. folks that live there. But obviously, all of a sudden, the seniors said, what do you mean we don't drive? We need cars. So there was no visitor parking. It was all taken up by residents. So if you went to visit your mom or your dad or some, a friend, you couldn't park there legally because there was no parking. So they had to make allowance for this. But I don't, for the love of God, understand how you can have a million-dollar parking lot. I, I'm, I, you know, Short of tearing the building down and, and putting more parking in, how do you accommodate something like that? Where does the money come from, and, and, and how does the, the price escalate like this? Well, it escalated, you know well, very well, that when you go to do anything at City Hall, it costs a lot of money. And, and I'm really starting to question whether we're getting value for dollar. Um, I, I've raised this several times, and I will be raising it again, but there's an example to me that is so clear. Um, we build splash pads, and a splash pad is really not a complicated um, piece of, of infrastructure. And the average cost of a splash pad, which used to be half a million dollars, which, you know, I gasped when I heard that, it's up, it's probably pushing six now. So I started looking around and asking other municipalities what they're paying for their splash pads, and I think we're almost double. So, you know, I'll be doing a little bit more research to come back and say, are we actually, you know, researching and looking for the best value for the projects that we're embarking on? And why part of this, this um, parking lot included a, hundreds of thousands of dollars on on planning and, and uh, you know, the landscape and that. It's asphalt and paint, but we tend to do everything to the extreme. Now, part of it also was moving the entrance, which we've, I've taken off the table at this point. If it's $300,000, we, you know, we, we simply can't afford to do that. There is a concern that there's a problem with entering the parking lot. We can get around that uh, with a number of scenarios that are much, you know, cheaper than 300000 plus. But the point is, that was never pointed out, despite the fact it was included in the original intent. But shortly after they approved the three hundred and fifty with the consultant's original report, they realized that isn't even close to the amount of money we're going to need, and it's closer to $1.2 million. So, you know, how, do, how does it happen? What concerns me is, have I not stumbled upon this, in essence, like pushed and pushed and pushed and Where's the project and how much money have we spent? How much more money would have been spent? Would the consultant have had access to that $300,000 and would it be gone? Well, and what are you getting? I mean, the other question you always have to ask yourself as an elected official is are you getting value for the money? And, and as we sit here right now, and you've just articulated where we are, Donna, the cost here is over $1.1 million at this stage. Nothing's been done. The parking no, lot is the same. There is no new parking lot. There's there's no change to that land at all. Somebody's got a million bucks in their pocket, or they, I don't know where the no, hell the money's no. gone, but no, no, nothing's no, no. been it's, done. No. no, no, it's not a million in their pocket. Let me clarify. Only 115 has actually been spent. The cost of doing it is 1.2. They haven't done it yet. So they've spent the 115000 on consultants. There is still money left in the pot. The cost to do what they planned, which was 350, has escalated to 1.2, but they haven't spent that. They've only spent the money on the consultant, which was supposed to be 9,000, and ended up being 115,000. And what did you get for that from the consultant? Well, first of all, it was pulling teeth to get the information from, and we got some plans. Here's another thing: none of the consultant. The consultant was simply a guy who ended up subcontracting, and the people he subcontracted to came back to the city and asked the staff for all the answers to the questions that they then turned around and provided to the city. And, and that is true. So we paid for it in twofold, and none of the consultants that were used were from Hamilton. Where the oversight, and there's a word that we've thrown back and forth a couple of times during this conversation, but, but it's, it's a very legitimate question, I think, in this process. And, and we need to ask ourselves at this stage, who's looking after this file? I mean, it's one thing for you as the elected official to start waving red flags about this, but should there not be some internal uh, oversight into this that, that makes sure that this doesn't get to this point before it comes to your attention? Exactly. And that is my concern. And, and, and you know, Bill, this is just something that we happen to discover and uncover. How often is this happening on files that, that just kind of, you know, money is paid out and we, we don't know about what's happening? 
I don't know, but it's, it's, it's disturbing. It really is disturbing. We had a report from Charles Brown, who was our auditor again, come out um, uh, earlier this year saying we spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on consultants. And here's another example of that. What's, where is the oversight? And why are we not really pushing at, at, at this? And, and on the, at the uh, AF&A meeting, an audit and finance meeting coming up on Wednesday, you'll see more of that coming out. And it's, it's quite disturbing. And again, I know that part of the explanation for this is going to be, well, this is really an arm's length body. City Housing Hamilton is not really city council, but it's still taxpayers' money. And and it's still a city-driven initiative. And, and at some point, somebody has to be looking at the books on a regular basis instead of waiting until the auditor looks at them and starts pointing out glaring errors like this. Exactly. And, and how often have you heard that we need more money for Hamilton Housing? I mean, it is a every week. repetitive request every week. And then you discover somebody was going to approve a $1.1-plus million dollar expansion of a parking lot. I mean, you, you can't possibly justify that. Or even the 115, in my, my opinion, the 115,000 untendered contracts uh, just for, and that, that hasn't even been completed yet, just for consulting work to, to add a few parking spaces. I mean, you wouldn't spend that kind of money in the private sector, and, and uh, you know, it's not just a, an excuse. It is true. You wouldn't spend that kind of money if it was your own without some concrete results, and yet it seems to be spent. Now, as I said, the person who was supposed to be overseeing it left the, the department a long time ago, but in the interim, what happened? And that money was being spent after the fact as well. Why, then, was the city policy, which I assume is also the policy for city housing Hamilton, ignored when it came to tendering a process? In other words, when you put bids out, for those that don't understand the process, the policy for the city of Hamilton is you don't what they call sole source unless absolutely necessary. You put the uh, the offer out there, you invite people to come in and, and, and present their bids, and then the city is supposed to take the most economical bid that can get the most bang for the buck. In other words, do the job properly for the che- for the less expensive price, the least expensive price. You don't sole source. Where's the explanation? Why was this sole sourced in a situation like this? Again, I, we don't know. And uh, I know that the uh, manager now of City Hamilton Housing uh, is looking at that and looking at, as to why it wasn't uh, put out to tender. Um, but we don't have any answers at this point. People are just lifting, you know, raising their, their, throwing their arms up in the air and saying, sorry, we don't know the answers, which I understand, but I also don't understand. Now, Tom Hunter has also promised that this is not going to happen again, and I hope, and I, and I trust him. I, I believe he is, he is sincere at hoping this doesn't happen again, but I'd like to see the oversights and the measures that are going to be put in place to ensure this doesn't happen again, because as, as we've just pointed out, this is a, 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 part, a department, an agency, if you will, an arm's length agency within the city that is, is uh, always um, short of cash and needing money for renovations and, and uh, additional um, structures. So to spend this kind of money or even, even consider spending this kind of money for parking doesn't make sense. But when we see a scenario like this, Donna, you know what's going on in the minds of taxpayers, and I think with some justification, is they're looking at these numbers and they're listening to what you're describing here today, and they're saying, okay, that's that's terrible, but how many other situations just like this are going on or have gone on that we don't know about yet? Exactly. And how do we uncover them? How do we find out what is going on? Where does it stop? What has happened? What is happening? Is there something right now that we're not aware of? And I know there are things that, as I said, will be coming out on Wednesday that are quite, uh, quite scary and quite, quite disturbing as well. And, um, you know, is it systemic? Is, what, do we need to hire more staff to just oversee, perhaps look into these matters uh, deeper, um, more deeply or, or, or um, more frequently? I think perhaps that is one of the things that we should be looking at is expanding that particular department to have greater oversight over all of the departments. And, and hopefully, you know, you can, as soon as something, and I think it, it goes back to, I hate to say, but I think it does go back to a journalism background when you think, if I was sitting on the other side of the table and had access to the kind of information that I'm looking at that, you know, lands on my desk every day, you know, I'd have a wealth of material that would keep me busy for months. And, and you know, so think about what, you know, 
I'm just, this is, as I said, the tip of the iceberg. What else is going on? Well, this look is at, a big... For, forgive my naivety here, but there are managers in this department and every department of the city. And I would think that the manager's responsibility should be, uh, hey, Donna, uh, show me the three tenders for that uh, that uh, parking lot contract at Mohawk Gardens, could you? Uh, and, and let us know what the status is. That Those should be questions that are asked on a daily or a weekly basis. Clearly that's not happening, and as a result, these numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger. Right, and, and again, this is one... You don't, you don't need to hire more people. You need to have the people that you've already hired do their job properly. And also look for savings. I think that that has to be... Um, one of our one of our objectives and and I'm not sure it is but when you hear of things you know we've got a I don't know where to stop but there's a a washroom that is being currently being built at Turner Park Uh, it's just a cinder block basic unattractive washroom public washroom a half a million dollars was the original quote and I thought at that point I fell off my chair now it's up over 600000 And again, picked up the phone, start calling around other municipalities. They've gotten out of the business of building these permanent in, uh, structures because they're concerned about crime uh, on many levels, whether it's vandalism or somebody being assaulted. And Ottawa, for example, has um, a... They've, they've started purchasing mobile. They're almost like a, a high, 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 uh, high-end porta potty that come in on flatbed trucks, and uh, they're self-cleaning, and they can move them out of the park in the winter, and they can also, if there's big festivals, which Ottawa has uh, frequently, they can kind of move them around the city. Well, that's, therein lies them. the problem. I, we, I know you got to get to a meeting, and we're just about out of time, too, and you're right, because Turner Park's a seasonal park, too. It's, it's ridiculous that they build a full-time situation like this. Uh, but you've just uncovered another one, which we'll have to talk about another day. Donna, good okay. luck with this, and uh, keep us posted hey. as to what you find out. Appreciate the time today. Have a good day. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Downtown Charlottesville from Saturday afternoon, uh, anti-protests against the uh, white supremacist protest that was occurring down there. Clashes took place, of course, in Charlottesville this past weekend. A Unite the Right event that was attended by the KKK, neo-Nazis, and white nationalists was held, uh, and a group of protesters clashed. A woman has died from an accident when a car rammed into the crowd. Joe Thomas was right in the middle of the activities uh, on Saturday in Charlottesville. He is morning talk show host at WCHV in Charlottesville, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Joe, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Bill, thank you very much uh, for trying to uh, share some perspective with uh, Hamilton. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, a bit crazy in downtown Charlottesville, considering this is the hometown of Jefferson and Madison. Uh, it's amazing that we've gotten so far away from understanding that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, has fallen so far out of favor. Let's Before we start talking about the weekend, Joe, maybe you gave us a quick sketch on what's going on. What's the scene right now in downtown Charlottesville? Uh, back to normal, really. Uh, it's a little bit like the walk of shame for some who are embarrassed for their town. Um, but uh, the businesses are open and the restaurants are open. The police have... Uh, pulled up barricades, the streets are open, and everyone is still trying to figure out what to, what to do next. And that was, you know, my, my challenge this morning was to talk about the next day and the next day and the next day after that. Joe, the obvious question, the, the, the most elementary question here is, is not, well, obviously why this happened, but, but the other one that I think a lot of people were watching as they saw the coverage unfolding on Saturday why Charlottesville? Uh, why Charlottesville, Virginia? Why this weekend? And why this influx of people into your small uh, university town that, as you say, has uh, none bef- you know before this uh, been known as, as the home of Jefferson, the home of a fabulous university, and all of a sudden it became the flashpoint for, for racism, for white supremacists, for, well, some people consider, and, and I think with some justification, a terrorist act by one of those individuals. How did this happen mm-hmm. in your town? Well, be you know nobody should be mistaken. Driving your car into a crowd of people is a terrorist act. It's what ISIS does, and uh, nobody can equivocate that. And believe me, they have tried this weekend with me. Um, but it, it goes back further than that. It begins right after Occupy Wall Street, and we had an Occupy protest that actually camped for several weeks in Lee Park. 
uh, there. And at that point, one of the city councilors said, boy, it would be great if we could get rid of this offensive statute. And she didn't get anywhere with it and was forgotten. Well, after that, that we should interrupt. That was the statue of Robert E. Lee that you're referring to, right? Yes, and and still is. Um, and then the uh, shooting in South Carolina happened, where the young man had uh, Confederate flags and Facebook posts with Confederate flags. This re-energizing this zeal to remove any references to the Confederacy uh, and, for the most part, even the Civil War. Uh, from our history books and from our history discussions, and she had allies now on city council, um, the, the councillor named Wes Bellamy. Uh, Kristen Sakos was the first councillor. And uh, that, that started to gain ground. Now, a court case, because there is a Virginia law that prohibits both the defacement and removal of any war memorials. And we have a court order and a court ruling that says it is a war memorial and cannot be moved. So Quite honestly, the protest in support of the statue uh, was, I guess, a case of somebody didn't get the memo. There's already a court ruling. One worries in the case of war memorials that a judge might overturn that ruling, just not wanting to see more protests. But moreover, one has to remember that Richard Spencer, who's, I guess, considered the head of this alt-right group, uh, is a University of Virginia graduate. And uh, I think that's where also a lot of Charlottesville comes into play in this. Uh, He lives in northern Virginia where perhaps the police departments are more heavily funded or more heavily uh, fulfilled, maybe less, uh, more veteran police departments up there. So he comes down here, as often criminals do, to find the small-town police chief and the small-town police department to cause their ruckuses. Uh, and uh, ruckus they did, both uh, from the Antifa groups and the uh, Black Lives Matter groups and this Unite the Right group of uh, three or four different groups all coming together. Joe, as you reported, uh, as you were on Facebook, and the stuff you posted on the weekend as you were down there in the thick of things on Saturday, uh, as you noticed, you live there, you work there, you know the people in that community. You saw a lot of faces you've never seen before. This obviously was built up both sides in this issue, uh, mm-hmm. the Antifa people and certainly the the, the neo-Nazis and, and the KKK focused on, on Charlottesville and said this is going to be ground zero for this right now. And it was almost as if that was the battleground that both sides had decided they were going to, to put this last stand. Did you see this coming? Well, unfortunately, we did, and we were trying to warn against mob think anyway. Uh, we were hoping that we could let these publicity stunts be just that. And unfortunately, um, I don't want to diminish the fact that two Virginia State police officers and a young woman, one of the counter-protesters, are dead. Uh, that cannot be um, uh, trivialized, but these were two groups who were looking for publicity for themselves. And uh, they they succeeded in horrific fashion, and they were groups that, quite honestly, feed on the idea of groupthink rather than individual think. There's a post on my Facebook page, a picture that the Roanoke, Virginia Times caught of me uh, fighting with one of the Black Lives Matter protesters who came upon me just in, as you saw me on some of the videos on Facebook, uh, videotaping the proceedings. He, he bumps into me and calls me a racist. And I said, well, how do you even justify that? You've never met me before. How do you know I'm a racist? Uh, knowing full well he's just basing it on the color of my skin. And it, it, I think at that point I'd been tear gassed once and pepper sprayed twice, so I think my last good nerve was a little close to the surface bill. And, um, and I was about to let my inner New Yorker come out. We were about to go when all of a sudden one of the Black Lives Matter leaders who knew me uh, came up and grabbed this guy and said, no, he's cool. Now, the story goes on two hours later after kind of everything ends up. The kid runs into me on the downtown mall here in Charlottesville, away from the mob, away from the crowd. Couldn't have been a nicer kid. Came up, I'm really sorry, sir. I, I was caught up in the moment. I didn't realize I shouldn't have let myself. I said, listen, that's what happens in group thinking. We just started talking about his job. He doesn't have a job. He's trying to find a job. He's working at a fast food restaurant. He's trying to get, make ends meet. But the point being that away from the mob, we had a great chat, 10, 15 minutes long. But once you're in that mob think, we stop you being able to say, does this person deserve being hit with a two-by-four or a hammer or a stick or anything like that? And, we, and that's what we lost this weekend. 
The other element to this, and, and you've seen this, and, and obviously you've seen the feedback on social media over the last couple of days since this happened, Joe. Uh, and, and I know that, uh, that you know, the, the headline is going to be, this was the renaming of Robert E. Lee Park to Emancipation Park and the taking down of the statue. And some will suggest, well, that was the issue. But there's a lot more going on. There were subplots to this whole thing. Uh, and and uh, it's it's fairly obvious that the radical elements, uh, well, when you consider, for instance, on on. The, uh, the one side there, the rally that was being organized by uh, the alt-right in this situation. I mean, you know, it's been well reported right now that there are people in militia gear with automatic weapons standing in there behind them. Uh, they, they, this was a much bigger thing, and they wanted to make a statement this day, and, and they, sh- they simply chose your town to do it. Well, yeah, absolutely. This was, as I said, they, uh, Richard Spencer knows the town because he went to college here, and he's decided that uh, because we, we you know, have all... Uh, progressive city council that they would equivocate, and they were making it about something that quietly isn't the issue. But the bigger issue is one of green, not black and white, is that when you have this sort of economics problem where you've got poor white kids who are being told by the National Socialists and these fascist groups that they're poor because uh, Barack Obama was president and, and quotas have kept you out of the workplace, and then you've got Black Lives Matter telling poor black kids you're poor because the white guy has, you know, it, it continues to invoke white supremacy on you. And neither case is true. The economy still hasn't brought back the blue-collar jobs that we lived on in the 60s and 70s and in 50s before that, where we manufactured things. Charlottesville, believe it or not, was a textile town. We, uh, we were a, a bunch of shepherds before Jefferson was born, and we would send our linens down to Richmond to be shipped off to England. That was what Charlottesville did. And even through the 60s and 70s, there were big you know, uh, fabric-making companies here in Charlottesville. They're all gone, but those were jobs that people would be able to put their kids through college with and, and feed their family and save money for retirement. They're all gone, and the, the poor community in Charlottesville is left with, hmm, I wonder which convenience store pays better, and, and that's where we are. It's, and that's what gives these people the ability to go into these communities and win them over, because uh, your poverty is not your fault, it's that guy's fault, and then let's go off and go get that guy so you won't be poor anymore. And it's a compelling argument to people who are desperate. There's one aspect I, I, I've got to talk to you about, and I know your time is tight, and I really appreciate you spending some time with us here, Joe. No, no. There's, there's, been, a, there's been a great deal of pushback, of course, about uh, what some consider to be the inaction of Donald Trump and his response to this. Uh, many are categorizing his statement on Saturday as rather ambiguous, suggesting that uh, there's a lot of blame on both sides, uh, suggesting there could have been and should have been a condemnation of white supremacist and neo-Nazi activity not unlike what Ronald Reagan did uh, when he was president of the United States. You're, you're the guy that talks to this community on a daily basis, of course, at uh, WCHV. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, first off, this is going back long before Donald Trump was anything more than a casino owner and uh, builder. Uh, and this goes back before The Apprentice was even on TV. So to blame this on Donald Trump is ludicrous. Uh, what, what Donald Trump said was, Evil is wrong in all incarnations, and I challenge anyone to tell me that that's an inaccurate statement. Uh, you, we, I was in the middle of it. There was lots of violence coming from both sides. Uh, so when he says there was violence on both sides, he's right, uh, and there was. And until we start pointing out that beating people up with sticks because you disagree with them is inappropriate uh, and not going to be allowed, you have, you have the freedom of your day until you start hurting somebody else. Uh, a friend of ours here, uh, one of the members of the Virginia General Assembly, likes to say, you have the uh, absolute constitutional right to swing your fist around until it contacts somebody's jaw, and then it becomes assault. Um, you know, we have laws that protect that kind of individuality, and, and to say that one side was violent and, what, and the other side wasn't is ludicrous. And it was certainly, you know, this, this, this wave goes back long before Donald Trump was president, and quite honestly, long before Barack Obama was president. And it continues. And uh, we'll, we, I guess, ask ourselves right now, the rhetorical question is, uh, when's the next Charlottesville and where is that going to be? Uh, and sadly, uh, we don't know the answer to that. Joe, thank you, as always. I, I hope not. I hope not. I hope you're right. Appreciate the time today, Joe. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Talk Joe well. Thomas, uh, who is the morning talk show host of WCHV in Charlottesville, uh, suggesting that, uh, well, Trump had, was right from that point, that there's blame on both sides. I know that many others who were there and watched the incidents might disagree with that. 
Let me bring Dr. Anthony Neal into that uh, conversation from the Department of Political Science at Buff State, at Buffalo State College, uh, and always a welcome guest here on the program. Uh, Dr. Neal, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. I appreciate giving me the opportunity. Your thoughts as you were watching the events unfold in Charlottesville this past weekend, Anthony? My thoughts is that it was definitely a horrible incident, horrible reality, horrible uh, situation. Uh, and uh, it's quite unfortunate. And, but uh, the bottom line is that more than likely the rallies will happen again. The rallies aren't new, but I think this one took a extremely violent turn. How do you account for, as you've been watching the political landscape in, in, in your country over the last number of years, and maybe more specifically in the last number of months, Anthony, uh, what seems to be the rise and in, in increased popularity and, and the boldness of, of white supremacism and, and the neo-Nazi movement, which obviously showed its ugly face this past weekend? Well, those who study these groups and study these situations stated that uh, there was definitely an uptick in these groups with the election of uh, Barack Obama to the presidency. Which certainly that carried through for eight years of his presidency. And then with the election of, of Trump as president, Trump essentially rode that wave of, of anti-Obama and the, the bigoted wave into the White House. How do you account again for uh, uh, well people like Trump? Let's let's you know put a face to this right now, and others who play on that racism, who play on that anger, who play on that hatred for political purposes, and actually fan the flames for their own political agenda. Well, that too isn't anything new. However, when it results in the death of another American citizen at the hands of a, another American citizen, I think they should take pause and think about what they're doing. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, to use the cliche, in playing with fire, you're going to get burned. I think uh, the president got burned this weekend. But we've seen in the past, I mean, when when the country needs leadership, uh, they look to the president of the United States. And whether it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt with We Have Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself, whether it was Ronald Reagan uh, who made that speech uh, a number of years ago, of course, where he called out neo-Nazis and said to their faces, he says, you are the ones that are causing the disruption in America. You are the ones that are being anti-American, much to the uh, applause of that crowd. And you juxtapose that with Donald Trump's comments that says, well, there's blame on both sides here. Uh, basically, Trump's remarks were abhorrent, uh, that's one of the worst responses I've seen from the president who has been called upon to address a national situation. And, uh, and I wasn't a, a major supporter of George W. Bush, for example. However, I believe in certain situations he struck the right tone in terms of essentially tapping into the emotions of the nation. Donald Trump missed, missed it completely. Well, and we saw that even after 9-11 when uh, George W. Bush and his comments to the American people uh, pleaded with them not to blame Muslims for what happened. He said these were extremists, and he said this is not a war against the Muslim faith. These are, these are good people. These are good American people, etc. I'm paraphrasing, but, but those were certainly the, 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 the tone of his remarks, uh, s- totally opposite to what we heard from Donald Trump. Right. In a situation like that, he was able to rise above partisan politics or politics uh, in his own favor, appealing to his own base, for example. Uh, apparently, this particular president is incapable of doing that. I know he is uh, scheduled to speak somewhere later on today, and people wonder if he's going to come out forcefully, but it's too late. There's nothing that he can say now that can erase his actions over the weekend. Well, the only positive uh, tweets that we saw, one was from his uh, his wife, uh, who tweeted uh, about, uh, you know, we can't tolerate this sort of thing. And I found it rather interesting. I don't know if you saw that on Twitter earlier this morning, Anthony. But the uh, the tweet that Melania Trump actually released is actually uh, plagiarized from something that Michelle Obama had written uh, back in 2016. So I got, I got to wonder who dug that up. Uh, I guess well, maybe yeah, I sh- maybe I shouldn't be su- maybe I shouldn't be surprised because a good deal of the speech that they made at the convention last year was uh, from Michelle yeah, Obama's yeah. as well. She had quite an affinity for Michelle Obama. If I'm not 
What? Uh, where does this go? We got about a minute left here, Anthony. With what happened, we're just told uh, from uh, Joe Thomas uh, from uh, WCHV in uh, Charlotte that things are quiet down there today. Uh, hopefully, the worst is over. As tragic as it was, uh, are are we concerned? Should we be concerned that there will be another Charlottesville someplace else? Uh, definitely, we should be concerned. Yes, it's quiet, but that's the quiet before the storm. You may not have people in the streets at the moment, but those ideas are quite prevalent. And it's those ideas that bring people into the streets. And those ideas are still alive and well. And I, I might add, given oxygen with the president's remarks over the weekend. Anthony, thank you as always for uh, your perspective on this and for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. All right, thanks. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Anthony Neal, Department of Political Science at Buffalo State College. Uh, commenting about what happened in Charlottesville. And uh, as uh, Joe Thomas told us, uh, who uh, works uh, down there at uh, WCHV in Charlottesville, he was right in the middle of it. Things are calm now, but uh, the tension is still there, certainly, as it is, I think, right across America. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let me uh, get back into the issue that we first raised, of course, late last week, and that, of course, are the results of the Special Investigations Unit, or SIU, into the uh, death of Anthony Divers last year in downtown Hamilton. It was a Friday night on James Street, just uh, by the GO station. And uh, it's a, a tragedy. Anytime something like this occurs, it's taken, in my opinion, far too long for the SIU to respond with their full report on this. And uh, there's still a lot of questions unanswered, still some people that are very upset by this. Uh, on both sides of this issue, both from the Hamilton Police Services and, of course, the family and friends of uh, the, the man who was killed that particular night, Clint Twolin is the president for the Hamilton Police Association, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the report and the implications. Clint, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Listen, this is such a conflicting story and such a, a, a tragic story in so many different ways, Clint. Uh, you've had a chance to go over the SIU report. Maybe I, if, Let's start with that and, and your interpretation and, and your perspective on what you read from the report. Well, I, I was really happy to see how thorough it was and, and really outline how the SIU came to their conclusion, because I think sometimes that's missed. And uh, without a lot of the background information and giving a, a true story and, and, um, and an outline of what actually happened that night, I was uh, pleasantly surprised how much detail was in the, the report itself. Let's, we'll, we'll get into the length of time in a couple of minutes because I know you've got some pretty strong views on that too. But let, let's talk about that and, and, and getting all the facts and, and gathering that sort of information. What the SIU, of course, does is very similar to what you as, as police service will do uh, anytime investigating an incident. is trying to get as much information as you can. And, and I know that, uh, that some members of the family are very concerned about this and, and there seems to be uh, also, some history here about Mr. Divers and, and his history with uh, with mental health issues as well. But I'm going to ask you pointedly about one specific part of this, Clinton. I'd like to get your perspective on this. Uh, as they were continuing with the investigation, I want to go back to that Friday night. And from what I can ascertain from what I've read, I haven't read the whole report, but I've read excerpts from it and some highlights from it. Uh, they talked about an incident that had occurred earlier that Friday evening in another part of the downtown, and then uh, this officer in, in question obviously spotted uh, this, this suspect, I guess, but it turned out to be Mr. Divers. Uh, and at that time, my impression is is that the, the, the report that went out to, to all police who are in that area right now, uh, somebody who had assaulted a woman had, uh, was armed, they thought, uh, was high on drugs, had a violent history, and was considered anti-police. Uh, that seemed to be the description of the individual that police were looking for. Is is that pretty much uh, what, what you gathered from the from what the report stated? That's my understanding. Yeah, that's that's uh, um, from not just the report, but I've had an opportunity to speak with the officer as well, and so that is uh, pretty pretty. Um, it, it, it's a very accurate uh, description of what the information was. Because I know that one of the things the family is concerned about here is they said, well, uh, they, they didn't take into consideration uh, the, the mental health history of, of the individual, Mr. Divers, in this situation. But from what I can understand from the report, Clint, that was never mentioned in, in I, I don't want to use the, the, the TV phrase, the all-points bulletin, but in other words, the report that went out to police to say, hey, there's something going on here. Was there any mention at all about mental health issues and that, that somebody may be in that circumstance? To my understanding, there wasn't, uh, and that being said as well, the information that the, the, the first officer received from the complainant um, and how this, this sequence of events began, 
unless it was specifically um, spoken to by that uh, particular, the, the victim of that crime, the officers wouldn't have that information anyway. Because if that were forthcoming, if that were part of the report, would that have altered the, the approach that that officer would have made that evening? I'm going to say no, um, because I think it might be a little bit misleading, but it's never the intention of a, any police officer to, to get involved in a confrontation where they're going to have to use lethal force. That's the last thing that they want to do. I think that, um, you know, even with that knowledge, we know that uh, even someone who suffers from uh, mental health issues uh, can be equally or if not more da- dangerous than, than any other person that we might deal with. So that would have, uh, you know, as far as the, if there was actual communication between the officer and Mr. Divers, that certainly would have uh, played a role. But there was no interaction, there was no conversation uh, or anything like that to try to, 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 to put this um, incident into a different direction. I want to talk a little bit about what the police service in Hamilton does with, with those issues. And, and I know that, uh, that uh, Chief DeCare and now Chief Gert uh, have both talked in, in very high regard about the collaboration that uh, that Hamilton Police Service has with uh, St. Joseph's Hospital and mental health issues, and and you've got right along where there are mental health professionals uh, that can assist officers uh, when they're making calls like this. Uh, but clearly they're not there all the time, Clint, and, and clearly there has to be some sort of, I guess, uh, previous information that that, that that sort of individual is needed. Uh, it's it's not as if they're going to be ride-alongs all the way, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful program, and I know it's a program that many other police services uh, are looking at now to try to emulate uh, because of, of the success that Hamilton's had with this. But it's it's not the sort of thing, I guess, that's going to happen with every incident, is it? No, it's not. And and they are great uh, programs, and, and they're very successful. And they have uh, certainly, we've, uh, as a police service, adapted to, to dealing with mental health issues. Uh, I can tell you, like when I was a rookie, I, I'm going to say that, you, you know, you might have one or two calls a day that dealt with uh, with mental health issues. We're we're sitting somewhere. I, I've heard numbers like twenty percent of our calls now. Um, but t- to be honest with you, even even in the set of circumstances, the information before the officers was that Mr. Divers had earlier in the day he had a firearm. That's not something that we would send, for instance, our coast unit to. We do have the mobile cr- uh, crisis response team as yeah. well. But uh, this would be more, in all honesty, uh, uh, in line with what the tactical team would deal with. Uh, um, because uh, dealing with an armed or possibly armed subject who's anti-police, who's violent, though all of those cues and all of those um, those um, those those that that information that came out and it was outlined in the report as well. Those are the types of things that you would want um, uh, the ERU to deal with because they're 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 trained to do that and they have the equipment to be able to do it. And again, to use uh, you know the language, the vernacular that we might see on, in in movies. I mean, you know, we hear oftentimes in 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 those depictions of armed and dangerous. Now, I know that's not the phraseology that police service use, but w- would that be the tone of the message that was sent out that night? Well, if I were a uniformed police officer that night, that's that's the way I would interpret it. Um, you know, uh, already one violent interaction. Uh, you know, the, I've, I've said it before, the set of circumstances that the officer faced in that particular situation, it, it was a culmination of a whole bunch of things that led to the eventual outcome. It wasn't any one specific thing. And, and I was, like I said, I was happy to see that the SIU outlined that. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't shortened to the point. It actually outlined exactly the totality of the circumstances as opposed to specific uh, individual parts. Clint, give me some background here, and, and our listeners for that matter as well, about the kind of training that goes on. I, again, I, I, I know we've, we've heard about, uh, you know, the alley that the FBI go down. You know, you walk down that street, uh, you know, and, and certain situations will flare up. I know other police services use a similar tool to try to train officers in, in, in situations uh, to be able to respond and react. Uh, not all do it, of course, and I guess it depends on, on the department in which you're serving at the particular time, too. But but do you feel that there's adequate training for, for new officers uh, in situations like this, in critical situations, and what could turn out to be life-and-death situations? Well, 
First of all, I guess you'd say, yeah, my, my response is yes. I, I do believe they're adequately trained. Uh, the problem is, and, and I, know, I, know, I know you can sympathize with this, you can't train to every situation that you're going to encounter. It mm-hmm. just, that's, you know, it's just not possible. So you're giving, given your use of force options, and uh, you have a use of force day that uh, is specifically designed, everything from the firearms training to the empty hand techniques to the um, situational type scenario-based uh, training, they they try to and our and our training department does a great job and they're very innovative as well to try to put a, an officer in a, the most realistic situation that they can. I'll be honest with you, <laughs> it's not my favorite day because it is a very stressful day and they do amp it up and they 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 put you in situations that have occurred in real life and. Uh, they they train you prior to. They just don't throw you in there and say, just let's see what happens. It's a series of training that goes into it before you actually face those uh, reality-based scenarios. So, yes, I, you know, I, I believe that we do everything that we can to train our officers to be prepared for the real world, but each situation is so individual and independent that you can't put all of those those moving parts together in a training scenario. You try your best, but... But ultimately, it's it's going to come down to the officer's training, and then as well, all of uh, his or her personal experience and abilities, and those types of things that we we rely on. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, in talking to officers that have served, actually not just here in the Hamilton area, but others that I know that uh, that have served in other jurisdictions as well, uh, how can you possibly include every scenario? I mean, because I've I've been told from officers about. Uh, violent confrontations and, and in some cases, uh, life and death situations uh, that they faced in, in uh, from a domestic call. Uh, it could just be an interaction on the street uh, with somebody who's you know asleep on a park bench or something. I mean, it, it can manifest itself, I guess, at any time at any place. Yeah, it's great to have a certain amount of information before you go and you attend a call. I'll be honest, the vast majority of calls that we get are uh, quite limited. You you're going in fairly blind. You have a little bit of information. Uh, and you prepare yourself mental, mentally before you actually uh, engage yourself in the in the situations. But it is next to impossible to to, to uh, try to plan for every outcome. And I, again, go back to uh, my own personal experience. I was on the tactical team for eight eight and a half years. That is a unit that has the luxury of training on a weekly basis to try to to flesh out every scenario that you can you you m- might possibly face. Frontline officers don't have that luxury. The other element of this, too, is even for people that have gone through tactical training, uh, <laughs> i, I got to assume, Clint, when you're in that scenario, training is one thing, but having facing it in, in a real-life situation is, is a totally different scenario. Oh, absolutely. It, and you, you can only simulate so far, and then and, you know, when your own human instincts begin to, to, to become involved, your anxiety, you know, stress, those types of things, uh, absolutely, it's 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 something. That, the beauty of that is that when you get that opportunity, you learn to manage those 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 um, you know psychological and emotional reactions. The other thing too is you go through this report, and I know the report has received some criticism, and I think some of that is probably justified. Uh, I think what we need to keep in context, and I'd like to get your response to this, is this whole report. And when they talk about the incident that night, happened in a matter of seconds. That's right, and most. Um, I mean, there are pages and pages of descriptors and witness accounts, uh, and varying witness accounts, of course, to this whole thing. But for for those two people, Mr. Divers, and for the officer that was on the scene, uh, this is this is less than a minute. Absolutely, and that is how most of these interactions happen. It's it's uh, not often a drawn out situation. It's it's quite literally, uh, and and it's so. It's so on the fly and so dynamic at that time that uh, decisions are made in a fraction of a second. There were a number of people uh, that were cited in the report, Clint, uh, that uh, identified themselves as witnesses to various aspects of what's happened, either uh, the confrontation and then the walk away, et cetera, and, and you know, as, we, as was characterized in the report about Mr. Divers turning around and actually approaching the officer, taking a couple of steps forward. But very, very different accounts from different witnesses. Were you surprised by that? No, no, absolutely not. It's it's well documented uh, that witness um, information, witness testimony, witness um, you know any any type of information that comes from a witness is 
it's an objective or sorry a subjective viewpoint and so people see things differently their memories are different uh their perspectives are different so that doesn't surprise me um and but i think that uh in this particular case the siu investigators did a great job of piecing it all together based on all the information they had I wanted to ask you about the time frame on this, too, because I know the family was concerned about this. I know the police services about this, and I know you've talked about this in the past, uh, about the length of time uh, that the SIU takes uh, to investigate incidents like this. And this is not the only one, of course. We've had a couple of them in Hamilton, sadly, in the last number of years. But but what are your thoughts about about how long it takes? I, I know you want it to be thorough. You want it to, to lift up every rock and get every piece of information. But uh, but can it be done in a more uh, uh, timely fashion for both sides to, to, to get satisfaction and gain closure? Well, I think it's important, Bill, to break it down into two different uh, aspects, I guess you would say. One would be the investigative stage, and then the second would be the stage in which a determination is, ba- or, or is made based on the information that's, that's been obtained. So, I, you know, the investigative side typically is quite short, actually. Um, you know, if we have an, an, an SIU investigation where they're going to invoke their mandate, typically it happens that day. Uh, there's the odd exception, but mostly, and the reason I know this is because I get called for every single one. So they are on scene that day interviewing witnesses, gathering information, securing scenes, speaking to the, the victim, speaking to the officers. Uh, so, like, my perspective is that that portion happens quite quickly. There's always the ongoing uh, portion where additional information or, or tests back coming back from the Center of Forensic Sciences, those types of things do take time. But, I, you know, what I think we're finding is that it's the decision that's taking so long. And I know Justice Tullock has made recommendations to try to improve that, and, and we would welcome that wholeheartedly because uh, one of the recommendations is to have two, I guess you'd call them deputy directors, mm-hmm. one in charge of administrative side and the other in operations. That's the, the, the part that I think needs uh, to really speed up, and that's once the investigation is done, a conclusion come to and uh, that be released. What do you take out of this report? What what happens going forward right now? Is there something we can learn from this? Something police service can learn from this? Well, I, you know, I, I believe there's going to be an inquest. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, but that's that's my first my first guess. I, I think we always learn, and it's really really important that we take a look at uh, um, how that incident evolved, and if we can make improvements, then we'll do that. Uh, as you know. There's something called a Section 11 investigation. That's a mandated investigation internally by the that the chief has to um, initiate, and that's to look at our policies and procedures and and the uh, the actions taken by the officer that night. And the goal of that is to it's not to look for wrongdoing per se. It's to look to see if we if we did everything right or if we can do things better. It's uh, it's not over. It's a terrible, tragic situation, of course, for the divers' family, for police services, and uh, for the greater community as well. Uh, and a very tar- tra- tying, or trying time, rather, I think, for for just about everybody involved. Clint, really, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to kind of go over this whole thing and analyze it for us and give us some perspective on this. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Take care. It's Quint Twolan, of course, president of the Hamilton Police Association. And, uh, again, our condolences to the divers' family and to... Uh, Others uh, who saw this and witnessed this, I know that uh, talking to other victims, uh, families, and, and, of course, to witnesses of situations like this, uh, it's, well, I don't mean to understate this, but, but certainly something you never, ever forget and something that will impact you for the rest of your life. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.